If you're able, would you remain standing a moment longer? And we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 6. And as you do that, uh, I'll tell you next Lord's Day, Lord willing, uh, Elder Anderson's going to teach us regarding uh, J. Gresham Machen, who was a, uh, a, the good guy, in the, uh, one of the good guys in the great controversy that gave birth to our church, will be our, our Sunday school lesson on YouTube. And this hymn we just sang is one of his favorite hymns, but more importantly to us, it is also one of Leo Zasa's favorite uh, hymn, which is more important than being Machen's favorite hymn, at least as far as we are concerned. So this is the word of our Lord, Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the untruthful, unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do pray to give us light as we consider this portion of your word for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I told you last week, I was struggling uh, with uh, formulating this passage into a sermon, and the result of that was actually two sermons out of this passage. So the Lord willing, next week we'll return to this passage. We are currently navigating through the walking portion of the book of Ephesians. We could go all the way back to chapter 2 as saying that that's the walking passage of uh, portion of the book of Ephesians. But here in chapter 5, three times the apostle tells us that we are to walk in a certain way. In verse 2, he tells us that we are to walk in love. In verse 8, we are to walk as children of light. And in verse uh, 15, we are to walk in wisdom or to walk seriously or to walk circumspectly there. And as I said many times before, this idea of walking is really the idea of living, the idea of behaving. We are to live in a certain way because of who we are in Christ. And with this idea of walk, once again, we see that the Christian life is an active life. It's not a passive life. It's not something that you just do sitting down. You're actively pursuing Christ. The Christian life is a life of movement and growth as opposed to being a static or stagnant life. And this morning, I would like to do three things as we consider this passage. First, I would like for us to briefly connect verses 6 through 14 to what's gone before in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. Then I'd like us to see that a Christian is not to participate in the sins of unbelievers because he or she is not an unbeliever. And then lastly, I'd like us to understand how we can positively be lights in a dead world, which means it, which would take us through verse 10 of this passage, and Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we'll consider verses 11 through 14. No promise there, though, but that's what the plan is for next week. So, 
Let's first take a look at how what we read today, verses 6 through 14, connects to what we considered two weeks ago in verses 1 through 5. And what we see here is that Paul says that walking in love, in love mainly describes the manner of conduct of Christians toward other Christians. In verses 1 through 5, Paul de- describes what it means to walk in love. And when he does that, he's saying this is how Christians should behave toward other Christians. And we see this implied in the exhortations not to find certain things among you. He says, these are the things in verses 3 through 5 that you are not to find among you. And drawing from other passages, especially from 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, don't expect the world to act in this way, so you are going to find these things among them. Don't find these things among you. And so here, walking in love is primarily directly directed to how we are to behave toward one another. Now, this is not to say that we're not to love the unbeliever. The command to love our neighbor as ourselves alone is enough to disavow any attitude that tells us that we don't owe any love to the people outside of the church. All I'm saying is that the focus of verses 1 through 5 is in relationship to one another. It's often, as is, it is often the case in the New Testament, love is something that's expressed to other believers. It's something that we don't have the option of not, express, not expressing to other believers. And when we come to verse 8 and to the exhortation to walk as children of light... Paul is now emphasizing our conduct toward those who are outside of the church. Walk in love towards those that are in the church. Walk as children of light to those that are outside of the church. And I conclude that because of the reference to exposing the unfruitful works of darkness in verse 11. And again, the exposing effect of the light in verse 13. So the section that we are considering this morning primarily guides us through our relationship with the unbelieving world. Having said that, I'm not saying that we don't need light in the church, that there aren't things that need to be exposed in our own lives, in our own church. But primarily what Paul is talking about is how we relate to the people outside of the church um, in this passage. And what he says is that we are not to participate in the sins of unbelievers because we are not unbelievers. Uh, uh, as I said earlier, uh, either I am a man after Paul's own heart or Paul is a man after my own heart, whatever it is. We, I appreciate Paul because he is willing to state the obvious. He says, don't sin because you're, you're not part of the unbelieving world. Don't behave as if you're not a Christian because you are a Christian. That should be so obvious to us, but we often fail to follow that. You know, And what we see here is that Paul, being an expert on human nature, anticipated that some Christians would give ear to the idea that the sins that he enumerated, that he listed in verses 3 through 5, weren't that bad. That it would be okay for Christians to be involved in them. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Paul, being an expert in human nature, knew that somebody was going to come to Ephesians and say, Ah, it's not quite like Paul is saying. You don't have to be that serious. It's okay to, to, be, to be sexually immoral. It's okay to be covetous. It's okay to be an idolater. It's not as bad as Paul is saying. But what was, Paul was not only an expert on human nature, he was also an expert on how Satan behaves. 
He knew that Satan had one and only one strategy. And that strategy is to cause God's people to doubt God's word. That's how he's operated from the very beginning. He knew that Satan was going to avail himself of this strategy to come to the Ephesians or to us today and say, has God really said, is that really as bad as God is saying? I think he's just telling you not to practice sexual immorality because he wants to take something good from you. And Paul anticipated that because that's how Satan behaves. That's how Satan works towards you, towards me, hoping that somehow he can grab one of us away from the Lord. Though it is impossible, he is going to try to do that as hard as he possibly can. That's how he did in the beginning. Remember the story, the, 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 the account of Satan tempting Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? It says this, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has, had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? See the, the subtlety there? He didn't come directly and say, Eve, what God said is wrong. He just planted that seed. Has God really said? Is that really what God meant? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it. And then Eve adds, Nor shall you touch it. Which is a very dangerous thing to do, to add to God's word. Because whatever we add doesn't come true. It, it, there's no guarantee that's going to come true. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. No, God is not going to do what He said He is going to do. What, what the Word of God says, you can challenge it. You don't have to follow it. It's going to be okay. And what Satan says next is what sometimes we actually buy into it. That what God tells us is not the best for us. That somehow God is going to keep the good from us when Satan says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The reason God is telling you not to eat of this fruit is because it's, He wants to keep something good from you. The reason why God is saying, telling you to be sexually pure is because He's trying to give some, take, take something good from you. The reason He's telling you to not be covetous or idolatrous is because He wants to keep something good from you. That's Satan's strategy, and we often think that way. That somehow we're sacrificing something good in order to obey God, which is not the case. God is only giving what is good for, for us, even when we can't figure out. And the passage goes on, and the woman buys into Satan's lie and says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. When God said, you know what? When Satan said, yeah, God is trying to keep something good from you. What he says in his word is not really come to pass. It's not really true. And the woman said, huh, yeah. Now, you know what? I hadn't desired that tree all along, but now that you say that, it, it does look very yummy. Man, it's, so, it's a beautiful fruit. And so on. And that's how we end up in this mess that we are in today. Because our first parents fell into the trap of Satan to doubt his God's word. And that's why Paul says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Words that contradict what God says are empty words. They're worthless. They're meaningless. To use a good old Ecclesiastes' word, their vanity, their vainglory, their self-centered words. 
Yet Christians seem to so ready to listen to these words. We are so ready to listen to these words. Uh, Jay Adams, in his book *Competent to Counsel*, relates a story that he heard uh, over a counter. He was at uh, one of those uh, uh, diners, and two ladies, two older ladies, were working the counter, and he's there eating his breakfast, and the ladies, uh, two Christian ladies, talking to one another, and one says, "I really want to." Um, I really want to leave my husband, but I can't because, you know, I can't divorce my husband and so on. The other said, the other said would, would leaving your husband make you happy? Yeah, that'll be the, the happiest day of my life. And the other tells her, well, God wants you to be happy. So whatever it is that you need to do to be happy, God blesses that. Those are the words of the serpent. No, when, when Satan works in our lives, he's not going to come as a talking serpent. You know, we, I hope that most of us, if a serpent starts talking to us, we start running and very fast in the other direction. At the same time, considering what drug interaction we're having in our brain and thinking, should we get off of something if the serpents are starting to talk with us? It is important that we realize that these empty words that Paul is referring to here, the words that deceive, don't come from the mouth of a talking serpent. That's not where usually they're going to come in our lives. These words are going to come from the mouth of a friend. Has God really said? Should you really believe what God says? They're going to come from a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They're coming from a family member. They're coming from the lyrics of a song that we like. They're coming from someone we idolize, a professional athlete, an actor, a singer. They come from a political group that you're involved. They'll come from Reddit or other blogs. And they might even come from well-meaning Christian leaders. But Satan has not changed his strategy. And he's going to try to deceive you, to deceive me, in thinking that what God says in His Word is not the best for us. That He's not really serious about it. But our God is so good. Our God is so merciful. That He mercifully warns us that He is very serious about what He says as demonstrated by the consequence of unrepentantly doing the very things He told us not to do. Look again at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is the the consequence of routinely not walking in the light? What's the consequence of routinely behaving as if you're not a Christian? The The consequence is the wrath of God. And that's serious. It took Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, to... Cause the wrath of God to be removed from upon you and me if you're a believer. Don't disregard that. It is serious. Sin is serious. Don't, let's not take it lightly. These are empty words that convince us otherwise. And as Paul continues, he returns to something that he's been returning to all the, all the time through the epistle, he returns to the matter of our identity. The way to be faithful to God, the way to be strengthened 
in obedience to God is to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He has been doing this all the way from since chapter 2. Always remind us. He tells us, don't do this, don't do this. And why? Because of who you are in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he started by saying that you are alive in Christ. And he's done that throughout the book. And Paul wants us to think correctly about us. He wants us to think correctly about who we are in Jesus Christ. Because that gives us boldness in not sinning. The best way to, rem- to not sin is to remember who you are in Jesus Christ. This sounds strange because it's not language that's commonly used in the church. And we've been beaten down by this. And you might even think that I've gone out the deep end. But the Bible does not call a saved person a sinner. The Bible calls a saved person a saint. A saint who sins... A saint who still has the vestiges of that old nature that still has uh, temptation tugging at our hearts, but not our identity as not sinners. And when we think of ourselves just simply as sinners, guess what we're going to do? We're going to sin. But we are saints in Jesus Christ who still fail, but that's who we are. And Paul goes a long way in making that point so that we can have boldness in not sinning. But he also wants us to remember who we were without Jesus so that we can develop a humble appreciation for the grace of God. We need to to be aware of the radical transformation that happens in us when we are born again. It's not just we're we're not just improved. We're not just we don't just get a little better, but we are completely changed into a new creature. All things have passed away, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. All things are New And thinking rightly about the, that will help us not be deceived in empty words. And I want to say something to you who grew up in the church, our covenant children that are uh, uh, young and old, that you may not have known a day in which you consider yourself in darkness and so on. But that's really a true description of who we were apart from Christ. And, and, and th- hopefully and thankfully the Lord has worked in your hearts in a very young age so that you've never known a day in which you're in darkness. But that is still true of you. That's who you'd be if Christ had not been faithful to His promises to be a God to your parents and to you and redeemed you from grace. So hold on to that. Hold on to that so that you can humbly follow the Lord. And then Paul continues and connects this section of the letter, verses 8 through 14, with what has gone before by using the word for there in the beginning of verse 8. For you were once darkness. That's just the word because. And he says, you don't partake of or partner with the sons of disobedience because you are not one of them. If you're a Christian, you are not a son of disobedience. You're not a daughter of disobedience. That's no longer who you are. And Paul insists on that. He says, you were once darkness. Again, verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in Christ. And I want you to notice very, something very important here. He doesn't say you were once in darkness. He says you were once darkness itself. This is important for us to notice that because the one who is unregenerate, the one to use more common language, the one who is not saved... Is not simply trapped 
in darkness as a, as a hostage wanting to be redeemed. He or she is part of the fabric of darkness. As I was uh, reading this, the, uh, as I was working on this sermon and thinking about this passage, the picture that came to mind is of a dementor. Does anybody know what a dementor is? Last sermon, only the Kaliches knew what a dementor uh, was. But it is a Harry Potter character. And they are the soul-sucking, joy-sucking, life-sucking, uh, life-destroying being that punishes those that are sent to jail. That's what a Dementor is. When a Dementor enters the room, everybody knows that he's there. It's just the life is sucked out of the room. It's just, you know, everything is just darkness. That's a great picture of the one without Christ. Not as, an inno- not as an innocent hostage wanting to be redeemed, but the one who is darkness himself, darkness herself, sucking the life of everything around them. That's who you are. That's who, that's who you were. That's who I was apart from Christ. But we are no longer that anymore. And, and Paul does a good job in helping us understand who we are without Christ throughout the book. Being darkness is just one of the ways he calls us, uh, he describes us apart from Christ. Earlier on in chapter 2, he says that uh, we are dead in trespasses and sin. Then later on in chapter 2 again, he says that we are foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel. Then he says in chapter 4 that we are walking in the futility of our minds apart from Christ. Then in chapter six, uh, 5 verse 6, he says that we're sons of disobedience. Do you get the picture? Do you get the picture of our reality apart from Christ? But you also get the picture that's not who we are anymore. That's not who we are anymore. So when you are on the brink of sinning, when the temptation to look at pornography comes into your mind, when you are about to say something that's untrue, when you are going to lust after somebody, when you're going to be lazy, when you're going to be covetous, when you're on the brink of falling to that, remember, that's not who you are. You do not have to follow through on that temptation. You don't have to. Christ has died for you. And He's alive. And you are alive in Him as well. That's how important the matter of identity is for us. Paul here brilliantly paints a picture of the hopelessness for those who are without Christ. A picture that our Savior Himself painted. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, If the light that's in your eyes is darkness, how great is your darkness? In John chapter 12, He says, That those that are in darkness do not know where they are going. Which is interesting. Because the secular world say that they are the enlightened ones. Right? We went through the enlightenment. In the, sorry, it did not reach the second pew. <laughs> uh, that was not helpful. Um, thanks, Miles. Uh, the, in the 16th, uh, the 17th century, 18th century, we go through the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment consisted in removing God from everywhere. And that's the enlightened people. Those are the ones that know best. They believe in science, right? As if we don't. And yet God says, those that are apart from me are in darkness and they don't know where they are going. But again, darkness is no longer our identity. Look at verse 8 again. 
For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the world. Walk as children of light. God has transformed us. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that God translated, transformed, and moved us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. That's where we are. Notice again that Paul doesn't describe the Christian as being in the light, but as being light itself. Can you imagine that? That God says, you believer, you are light. And that the only way for the world to know light is through you. To which I say, God, you're God. But I probably could come up with a better plan than using me as the light of the world. Because I know my heart. I know my failures. I know the things that I do that are actually more consistent with darkness than light. And yet, because we are so united with Christ, with the light of the world, as John tells us in John 8, 12, that we are light despite our failures. Despite our sin, we are light. We have been birthed by the light of Christ and the gospel and are now children of of light. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And because we are children of light, we live, we walk according to whom we are. We do that according to our identity. And the measure of whether we are walking in the light is the fruit that our life produce. Look at verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The New King James, which is our pulpit version, has the word spirit in here. And this, the word should actually be the word light. Uh, if you have an ESV or, or a different translation, you're going to say the fruit of light. Um, uh, and then these three things there. This threefold fold fruit, and it is a single, singular word, the word for fruit, doesn't mean that sometimes we have goodness, sometimes we have righteousness, sometimes we have truth. This is one fruit, described by these three words, is evidence that we are children of light. Goodness is part of our life. Goodness here means achievement of moral excellence combined with a generous spirit. And this does not mean perfection. It does mean that this is the direction of our lives. As we look at our lives, we're growing in goodness. We're also growing in righteousness. And righteousness sounds like a complicated word, but all it means is doing what is right. As a believer, that is growing in our lives. As children of light, that is growing. And truth here means honesty and genuineness. That is also growing in our lives. And the more we walk as children of light, the more we grow in our walk with the Lord. Look at verse 10. Finding out what is acceptable in the Lord. Finding out what is... As we walk, as we live, we more and more know what the light of God is. Uh, in my study, we have a framed verse in Psalm 36, verse 9, which says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The closer we walk with God, the more light we see. The closer we walk with God, the more of God we see. So kids, no, mom and dad insist, read your Bible. Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. Why? Because the closer you walk with God, the more you're going to see Him. You know the little song, uh, how's it go? Read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. 
There is, uh, the sun version is even better. Uh, uh, it's a simple song, but it's so true. We see light in the light of God. Now, what does it look like to positively walk as children of light? In essence, how do we shine? Jesus will help us see that answer, uh, to answer this question. Would you, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5 for a little while. How do we live as light? How do we shine? Our Lord is helpful here. Look at verses 14 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. First, it is important that uh, we understand that our light does not find origin in us. Jesus is not saying, you're so good and bright. Let people see that. That, That's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Some have used the illustration of a a mirror reflecting the light of God, or like the moon reflects the light of the sun, which reflect the light of God. And that's some truth to it. But I think a better analogy is that we are lighthouses. The light is in us, and we're the lighthouses. And if the windows of our lighthouses the windows of our lighthouse are darkened. The light doesn't go out. But the light's not us. The light is in us, the Lord Jesus Christ. God shone that life in us. And I want you to notice, you see those uh, first three words, you are the, and then for the word light. The word you in the original language is completely unnecessary, and yet it's there, which tells us that Christ was emphasizing something. It's almost, he's saying, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you are the light. Not something else. Not some other organization, but you, the church of Jesus Christ, is the light. And then the word the, simple little word, probably the first sight word that anybody that's learning to read learns, because it doesn't work phonetically. The, simple. And what is Christ saying? He's specifying there's, there's, this, this, there's this one light. There's this one light that the world will see. And that light is you. It's me. You are the light. That's it. Can you believe that? You and I are the only hope this world has. We are the light. To help us understand what he's saying here, Jesus gives us two illustrations. He says that it's like a city on the hill. I don't know if you ever traveled a very dark road at night with no street lighting, and then you see a city in the distance, and it glows on the sky. And you can't hide. I mean, the city can't hide. You can't find it even without your GPS telling you how to get there because the light is bright there. Growing up, my parents had a beach house on a fishing village about 40 miles, 50 miles outside of town. And there was no street lighting. It was just a bunch of little houses. And we would go to the beach at night. And we look south, look to the right, we see the, the biggest city of, of the state I grew up in. It was right there. And the sky was all illuminated. 
it's not, it wasn't a great city. It's a smaller city than Seattle. But yet, because of the darkness we were in, that sky was all You know, that's Maceo. There's no doubt if we start walking today here, in a couple of days, we walk into uh, the city because that's right there. And that's the picture that we have here, a city on the hill. There was a belief back in Jesus' time that that was a reference to, to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, it's not a physical city. It is a people, a people who are shining the light of the gospel. That's what the world sees and goes. So a true follower of Jesus Christ will be bursting at the seams when he or she does not let his light, his light shine. I love the passage in Jeremiah chapter 20 where Jeremiah says, No, Lord, every time I preach, I get in trouble. I've been arrested. I've been put in a hole in the mud. I've been beaten. Preaching your word just gives me trouble. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do this anymore. No matter what happens, I'm not preaching your word anymore. My light is going to take a break. And then he says, But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Did you see the picture Jeremiah saying that he kept his mouth shut and it was going to explode because of the word, the light of God was in him and just wanted to come out. And that's us. We are that city on the hill. He also gives us the example of a lamp. Verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. This is not a, this is not a candle. The old King James has a candle, a candlestick. The, uh, candles had not been invited, uh, not invited, invented back then. So, so this is a, a little clay lamp with olive oil and a wick, and you light it for light. And most of these people were poor. That, that's just a reality of the time. Very few people had money. So oil was very expensive. And the idea of lighting a lamp and then covering it, it was the greatest dumb idea you could come up with. You're just wasting money. And that's the idea that Jesus conveys, that for us who have been dwelt by the light, who are children of light, to cover that with a basket and not let that shine is the dumbest thing that could ever happen. And Jesus tells us that this light has a purpose in verse 16, to bring glory to God. The world sees your light, the world sees my light, and then it glorifies God. And we tend to think, oh, that means that then they all will, no, they will come to know Jesus, and we're all going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Or these days, we're going to touch elbows and sing uh, Kumbaya. No. Your light might cause the world to glorify God by destroying you, by killing you, by making fun of you. That also glorifies God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we, when, we are, when our light shines, when we proclaim the gospel, to some, that is the smell of life. But to others, is the stink of death. And those are going to persecute you as your light, your, your light shines before them. 
Now, as you finish here, what are some concrete ways to be shiny, to actually show the life of, shine the light of Christ in this world? I think Christ helps us to see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. A healthy regard for the doing and teaching of the law of God and the whole counsel of God is how we show our light. You see that in Matthew 5, 17-20. A life of peacemaking and a respect for those around you. Matthew 5, 21-26 is a way that we shine our light. Faithful marriages, including faithful singleness in Matthew 5, 27-31 is a way that we shine our light. Honest speech that reflects your redeemed heart in Matthew 5, 33-37. Selflessness, Matthew 5, 38-42. Love for your neighbor, Matthew 5, 43-48. A sincere heart of worshiping the Lord in Matthew 6, 1-4. Prayer in Matthew 6, 5-17. A passion for Christ rather than for the things of this world in Matthew 6, 19-34. A heart that judges rightly because it has already judged itself in Matthew 7, 1-6. Sincere belief in Jesus Christ demonstrated by by obedience to all that he says in Matthew 7, 24-27. These are all ways that we shine our light. And do you notice what they are? They are ordinary ways a Christian lives. These are not extraordinary feat. This is not, oh man, if I just accomplish these great things, then my light will shine. No. Christ says walk in the light by just being what God calls you to do, to be. Live the ordinary, everyday life of a Christian. And that's how the light shines to the world. It is the, as Paul Tripp says, in the 10,000 moments, little moments of life, that the light of Christ shines more gloriously. Because each one of those little moments is one little um, ray of light. And when you bring those 10,000 moments together, talk about a focused, bright light that everyone can see. So it is in the living for your wife on every moment of life. It is in the obeying your parents on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and every other day. It is in the being faithful to obedience to Christ in the little things that the world will see the light of Christ. The, the Lord has brought us into His kingdom by His creative power, the creative power of His Word. He infused us with His Spirit. And He chose to bring the nations to Himself by having you and I being lights, be a, de- a demonstration of His character to the world. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7 that He sh- shown the light of the gospel in our hearts, that we might hold it in jars of clay, in pitchers. Now, why does Paul use that description? That we hold the light of God, the gospel of God, in pitchers. What are pitchers made for? They're made to pour what's inside into other vessels, other containers, other people. And that's what we're called to do. To ordinarily, day to day, live as a follower of Christ And that's going to create a massive, magnificent, focused light that the world will know and will see. That is a follower of Jesus. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who gives us light. We pray that as we walk in your light, you give us even more light. For asking Jesus' name, amen.